0: All right, uh, we are in Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 10 tonight, but before uh, we get rolling, I'm going to warn you ahead of time uh, that uh, in this sermon I plan on pronouncing judgment on the way you party. And maybe not in the way you uh, have traditionally gotten used to hearing pastoral indictments on partying too much, because I think today's text casts more shade on those who don't party enough. Today, we call out the poopers of the party, and I'm immature enough to really like using that word in a sermon, and we'll probably use it again in a moment. We are in Luke chapter 15 today, and there's three stories in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells, all about things being lost and being found in this chapter. Though the lectionary really only asks us to cover two of those three stories, um, I can't leave out the story of the prodigal son, we'll talk some about that as well, even if we don't read it right now, but... Uh, let's go ahead and read right now in Luke 15, chapter uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. It's in on page 1222 on the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. And it says this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then he told them this parable. Which one of you... Having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and carefully search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, Thanks be to God. All right, so this scene, uh, we should unpack a few things, a few details in this scene before we jump into the parables that Jesus tells. So Jesus is creating a gathering at this point in his ministry, and he's gathering and befriending a crowd of people that are more than a little problematic for a rabbi. In fact, that may be why he's referred to as a fellow instead of a teacher here. This man of God is hanging out with traitors and with the spiritually dubious Right? Those who have been stealing from their brothers and sisters uh, with taxes and capitalizing off of the Jewish, uh, Jewish oppression. Right? As well as those who are not doing the things they're supposed to do. Those who refuse to act in ways that are consistent with what everyone knew was in keeping with God's will. There's the people who are helping keep the Jews in, cap- in captivity nationally and politically and those who are helping to keep the Jews in captivity spiritually. All gathering around this fellow. In other words, Jesus is endorsing the wrong people. And the right people are making this transgression known to everyone. So Jesus starts telling stories that are kind of similar, but also a little bit different. But most importantly, all three of these stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, they all end in a party. And I want to talk about the party. Tonight, I want to endorse the idea that any truly righteous party, I don't mean that in like the Spicoli way, but any truly righteous party will fall somewhere between questionable and absurd in their nature. Let's talk through all all these parables. First, there's a shepherd. Now, I I need to let you know right now, because I think most people don't realize this, shepherds were not well-respected at that time. Uh, We have kind of spiritualized shepherds and valorized them a little bit because of stories like this and because of the imagery that's used in Scripture, but not so at the time, right? I know we're used to seeing these paintings where there's a very devastatingly handsome-looking guy in a robe carrying some beautiful small lamb over his shoulders, and it's simultaneously inspiring and a little, you know, kind of looks nice, and you're not sure how to feel about that, that uh, shepherd, some of you. And it's a beautiful picture, mostly because you can't smell it. Because being a shepherd was not a clean or nice thing to do. A shepherd was someone who might be passing through town and you would hire to do this job, but you probably didn't totally trust. They had a reputation for often stealing, not being reliable, or maybe just being morally dubious in general. They're a hired hand that should be treated with appropriate suspicion. And so this is the anti-hero that Jesus starts with here. And this anti-hero shepherd apparently isn't even good at the one job he's been hired to do because one of the sheep just walk away. Jesus says, end quote, and does he not leave 99 in the wilderness to go after it? That's stated like a loaded question, like the obvious answer is yes. But I'll be honest. Does he leave the 99 in the wilderness to go get the one? My answer would be no. No, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Why would you do that? I mean, I feel bad for the one poor, lonely, and let's be honest, probably dumb sheep that walked away from everyone else and is now by itself in the wilderness. That is sad. But if you leave the 99 sheep unattended in the wilderness, that's a very bad move. That's bad shepherding, right? For this very same reason in our house, we no longer leave all the candy and chips on the low shelves of our pantry because we have a three-year-old wandering around. If we left them down there, there will be no candy and chips left. I'm sorry that there's one can of Pringles out there in the yard all by itself. That is sad, but I'm not leaving the pantry unattended. Don't abandon the buffet. But he goes. He leaves 99 sheep in the wilderness, and he goes out to get that one sheep. And he does find the sheep. That's great. And he gathers it up, and he puts it on his shoulder. And then he calls all of his friends and neighbors, and he tells them about how terrible he is as a shepherd, and how he let this one get away, and how he left the other 99 there, and he tells them all about his terrible performance and decision-making, and then he throws a party for himself to honor what he has done. How is this a reason for a party? I think the one thing that would make this party more dubious in this story is if Jesus had named what to me is the obvious culprit for what this guy served at the dinner party to eat. Thank you for laughing at that. This morning I got silence, and I felt like I was a little too dark. All right, that's good. <laughs> then there's this woman. She owns a home. Now, she's likely not rich, but she's also not destitute, right? She has a home. She happens to currently have ten coins on hand. Each one would be worth about a day's wages at the time, which means it's not nothing, but it's also not the winning lottery ticket, right? It's a, it's a coin or amount of money that most people would see on a daily basis and have around it. Wouldn't, it's not that big a deal. Unlike sheep, coins don't ignorantly get up and wander away on their own, which means this woman didn't just lose a coin, she misplaced a coin. She was careless with it. So she wants to find it. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully and eventually relocates this somewhat common coin. Then she calls her friends and neighbors. And I really love that friends and neighbors, there's a distinction in both these stories. I think we all know those are mutually exclusive categories sometimes. She calls a friends and neighbors. She tells them this riveting story about losing an average coin, looking for it, and then finding it. I mean, what a great story. Wouldn't you really be bored at dinner hearing that? She tells him this riveting story of losing a relatively average coin, looking for it and finding it, and then she throws a party for herself to celebrate this totally common, unspecial, uh, not very high-value coin's return. Who would want to attend that party? And how do you pay for it? Probably with the coin you just found, right? It's a weird party to throw. Next, in the more well-known but story we uh, well-known story, but the one we didn't read tonight. There is a father with two sons, and the youngest son is a champion-level turd, if I'm allowed to say that in church. The younger son tells his dad he would rather pretend that his dad was dead than alive. Go ahead and give me my inheritance now. And he convinces the father to give him everything that that father had worked his entire life to earn and pass on to his son. He gets it from his father, then he leaves the house, and he makes himself unclean in every possible way. This younger son shames himself, his family, and wastes everything, literally everything that's been given to him. This kid is the worst. He is the cautionary tale that helps keep all of us on the right path because this is what could happen to you. Everything could go away. And when everything goes away and he literally has no other options anymore, he decides to come back home empty-handed, doesn't even get his somewhat pathetic speech out of his mouth before his dad starts lavishing gifts on him and throws a party in his honor, a party to honor the world's worst child who has done everything, literally everything, wrong and is now gracing us with his presence and coming back again. I'm going to throw a party like he never even left and never made any of these decisions. That's a bad party. No wonder the older son, the good son, refuses to come in and celebrate, especially because the party is now on his dime. These are bad parties. And after the grumbling of the accomplished, spiritually sound, upstanding members of the community towards who Jesus is hanging out with, Jesus tells these three stories of parties that every normal, sane, spiritually upright person should absolutely hate. These parties defy logic, they violate norms, and they celebrate what faithful people should not endorse. Hey, drop everything. I found the one dumb lamb who wandered off when I was checking Facebook on my phone and not doing my job, and it probably cost me the other 99. Let's have a party. Hey, cancel your plans. I was careless with 50 bucks in my messy house, and then I found her again. It's, It's not the good work you're doing out there that actually keeps this whole place running. My terrible son came back after wasting all of his blood money and doing every nasty thing we don't want to talk about. We're going to celebrate him like he didn't even leave. Now, I'm not saying I have the highest of standards or that my social calendar is all that full, but these are terrible celebrations. If these are the parties that I'm invited to attend, count me among the poopers. I don't want to go to any of them. None of them make sense. What message do they send? It's the wrong thing to say. They value the incorrect things. As a good, upstanding citizen who does their job and keeps track of their wallet most of the time and can be generally trusted with things, I hate these parties, right? And so of course, of course Jesus says these are the parties that make heaven the happiest. And that hurts a little bit. And it's not because a party's not for me. I'll be honest, I can live without being celebrated. I'm 48 years old at this point. I don't need a birthday party or birthday presents. I don't need you to celebrate the fact that I haven't died this year. And if... some some group with really low standards decide to publicly award me or acknowledge me for something, I would probably feel more awkward than honored by such a thing. I don't need a party personally. I'm fine one way or the other. But I really do need you not to celebrate the things I don't like. That's important to me. Please, don't root for that team. Please don't root for that team please don't tell me that that's your favorite band. That's not okay. Don't don't celebrate that band. And and please tell me you don't watch that reality show that celebrates those talent-free people that are making our culture worse. Please don't celebrate that. Tell me that is not what you're celebrating, and whatever you do, do not put that campaign sign in your yard. Please. I don't need a party for me, but I need you not to celebrate what I need you not to celebrate. And yes, I know, we sang it already, Amazing Grace, I get it. But there's nothing sweet about the sound of celebrating a wretch like them. And this is what's so frustrating about Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just ask us to tolerate these parties or even begrudgingly attend them. No, Jesus wants us to enthusiastically throw them. To be the kind of people who celebrate those we are supposed to like the least. And in view of God's mercy, if we're honest, it does make some sense. We heard it, we heard uh, 1 Timothy read earlier where Paul claims to be the chief of sinners, right? The worst among us. And if we really consider God's mercy and God's grace, we have to be honest about that. Each of us has been the careless one the lost one, or the prodigal one at some point. Some more publicly than others, some more spectacularly than others, but we've all been there. We've all shown up at the last minute and been paid for the whole day. We've all been hungry or thirsty or exposed and isolated and been dependent on someone else's mercy. We've all needed forgiveness or healing or maybe even an exorcism or two. Grace teaches us that each of us has already been the guest of honor at a party that should offend everyone else. We just tend to forget that. But it's as beautiful as it is absurd when we see it in action. I think this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. I think that's what the kingdom of God looks like when it's among us. And to be honest, I've seen it. A lot of us have seen it. I remember, uh, for those of you that have been here a while, I remember when our friend Tony bravely stood up uh, during the time we set aside for prayer requests. And he bravely stood up and confessed to decades of drug addiction. He confessed to wasting much of his life and going through all the things that accompany the life on the street that his addiction had ushered him into. Most of his adult life, he'd lived on the street and been addicted. In fact, it was no small miracle that he wasn't in prison for life because he had technically violated the three strikes and you're out rule in Texas and by a literal kind of miracle of God had gotten out of it and then moved to Mississippi. And what I know was very difficult for him because he was one of the proudest guys I've ever met, Tony stood up, confessed all that. For the first time, he had done that in front of a group of people and he asked for help. He asked that we would pray for him and help him out and I am thankful to say that the church did just that. And then we all watched for years as this group of quote unquote upstanding citizens, if we can call ourselves that, celebrated the victories of a convicted felon. And that convicted felon showed us parts of Christ that many of us had not known before. You bought him bikes, you provided work, we helped with shelter and friendship and support. Uh, we defended him and stood beside him when other people treated him poorly. That was a big mistake a couple people made. And we learned from the, hard, from the hard, fought, hard fought grace that he embodied. It was a hundred little parties for the prodigal over the next few years. And it was lovely to see. And of course, when tragically and inexplicably he was killed, we grieved deeply. And we tried hard to forgive the one who took him, as we know Tony would want us to have done. But by all definitions, it was an offensive party. And it was one of the best things I've ever been a part of. And I know this isn't explicitly in Scripture, but I can tell you that the kingdom of God is like a funeral in a large church building that is filled with preachers and drunks and doctors and politicians and addicts and business owners all of whom saw God's love clearly at work in the messy life of a friend uh, the world would never consider celebrating. I've been to that party, and it was amazing. And this is our calling, church, to be those kind of people, to be the questionable disciples of Christ who get bad reputations because of who we are around, To be the questionable disciples of Christ who party too much, to be the questionable disciples of Christ who just keep throwing parties no one else can make sense of, but also tend to bring heaven to its feet. Let's pray. We are grateful for your grace. We are grateful that each one of us uh, has been lost. Each one of us has stupidly wandered away. Each one of us has chosen against what is good and what has been given to us freely. We've all been paid more than we deserve. We've all been forgiven more than we warrant. We are all the results of your grace and your mercy. Lord, may we never forget it. And because we are uh, products of your grace, uh, God, may we be purveyors of it. May we be the kind of people that throw the kind of parties that bring heaven to its feet. May we never be so respectable that we cease to be gracious and loving. God, we are grateful and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.